0: Jazz.
1: I'm waiting for the clever. There's yeah, gotta yeah, be a clever yeah.
0: Okay, over. there's clever. Here it comes. All right. Welcome to Pat and Mike's Jazz Neighborhood. It's podcast
1: 98.
2: <laughs> I'm getting
0: comfortable. I've got on my cardigan sweater and my shoes. Can you say postmodernism? <laughs> say it with me. Postmodernism. <laughs> Conductor Mike, can you explain postmodernism to everybody? <laughs>
1: No, I think I want to listen to you do it. Go ahead.
0: Well, today on, (laughs) uh, I got to drop the voice there. And and young people, look it up YouTube. It, Mister Rogers. He's central to to many of our childhoods. My mother didn't.
1: You you won't know this, but the voice you're doing is much closer to a character on Family Guy. There's this school teacher. Lefty, crunchy granola type. All oh,
0: right, 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 absolutely, and he, yeah. and
1: he's he's gay, and he's got a little goatee and an earring, and he talks just like this, boys and girls. Just sounds just like what you did, <laughs> which
0: yeah, and, and I was thinking also, I think there's there's a character like that on South Park, and, and I think they all yes. are tributaries of the great yes. Delta that is Mr. Rogers.
1: I think that's true. One of the great internet myths of all time is that Mr. Rogers, who is I think an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister or something, actually came back from having been a special forces attack dog in Vietnam. <laughs> and I'm serious, you can read this internet urban legend. It's of course not true, but I love the thought that he actually was like, you know, in the jungle, you know, uh, crawling around in special ops stabbing Viet Cong and then he came over and donned at the sweater and spent the rest of his life repenting for his special ops. Anyway.
0: yeah, He was definitely so. on, on the, the background vocals to Welcome to the Jungle um, by Guns <laughs> yeah. N' Roses. That, that was Mr. Rogers. Yeah, well, few people know that because it's just not true. Yeah. Anyway, uh, young people look that up on the internet. He was, he was a meme for a while, but he's, he's been gone for a long time and his show has been gone. I wasn't allowed to watch it because he really annoyed my mother and he was just a little too mellow. But uh, I, I remember him well. He was he was a big deal. He, he gave a graduation speech at the little college where my my father taught
1: at one really? point. Really, he did, yeah. He gave the speech at McMurray?
0: and apparently he he swam lots of laps before doing it. He was he was a fit he was a fit guy. So anyway, wow. yeah, um, I, I thought that after last time's podcast, which included a discussion of the soundtrack to the Naked City. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> It just put
0: me in mind of another album called Naked City by a group called Naked City led by the inimitable John Zorn. And I feel like it's probably one of his signature works. There was a period there where John was not exactly on the majors, but non-such or whatever was was publishing him. And then he got his own record label and became so prolific that only Zornophiles could really follow his output. I've not I've not bought a John Zorn CD for probably 20 years. But there are thousands of them, right? And ones that he's produced, ones that he appear on. He is a real, at this point, kind of grandfather of the avant-garde. He's a major figure. But this was back in the day when he was briefly on the majors. And things like Spillane and Naked City were, I don't know, relatively well-known in jazz circles, I guess.
1: I suppose, yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, if you haven't heard them yet, I I strongly recommend that you do. I mean, this is, we're going to be looking kind of at a moment in time, which is, we're looking, talking late, late 80s, early 90s, for the most part. There is one exception here, where this movement in jazz kind of crests. And it is a downtown New York movement that is looking beyond fusion and trying to find the next step and kind of turns to a radical eclecticism and an upending of the canon. And so instead of looking back to artists as Went Marcellus would do, like Duke Ellington, or Thelonious Monk, or even John Coltrane, Zorn and his compatriots are kind of going through, quote-unquote, low culture or popular culture of the 50s and 60s, things like Japanese films, spy movies, TV shows. Hanna-Barbera
1: cartoons. Yeah,
0: cartoons, <laughs> right. He, he, he's fascinated with this idea that cartoon composers like Carl Star- Starling or is it stalling stalling thank you stalling carl stalling had to create soundtracks to extremely frenetic and and quickly booming turn on a dime cartoons and and so they would their, their their pieces would have these extreme juxtapositions they would not be one thing and develop it for a long time they would kind of cram six or seven or eight ideas into a very small space and certainly naked city is an amazing example of this technique as is Spillane in a little bit more concentrated way, which is his really uh, almost album-length piece inspired by the works of Mickey Spillane, another kind of, I don't know, mid-low-culture, pop-culture figure from the 50s that he's turning to for inspiration. So a major, major, major album. We'll talk about that at length. One of the artists appearing on it, Bill Frizzell, releases this fantastic trio album called Live in 91. So Naked City comes out in 89. And Joey Barron on drums and Bill Frizzell on guitar, along with an excellent bassist, released live in 91. Both those believe,
1: guys. I believe Barron's the drummer on
0: Naked he's, City. Yeah, absolutely right. So yeah, he's those two guys are both in Naked City. And then we wanted something by Mark Rabot, or Robot, I think it's Rabot, is the way you say it. Okay. guitar player who's part of the downtown scene. And I picked, somewhat randomly, just so we could throw in a kind of quasi-pop album. And I think it is showing some of these same... Techniques the same fascination with low culture and pop culture as the other ones. And that's Tom Waits' album, Rain Dogs. And this is from his 80s run where he stops being kind of a barroom philosopher and starts embracing aspects of the avant garde and theatricalism. And this is part of a trio of albums that are widely considered his greatest Swordfish Trombone. Rain Dogs and Frank's Wild Years that he did on an Island after switching labels from Asylum where he'd been for many years. And for a lot of people these are really pivotal. We're also looking at Uri Kane's two thousand album, The Goldberg Variations, a monster double album that takes this idea of eclecticism perhaps a little too far. I'd be curious to see what you have to say about that. <laughs> uh, it is a massive sprawling work in which he plays some Goldberg variations straight and then does every eclectic genre exercise you can imagine on the rest. So those are our four albums, and I don't really have a program in mind for taking them on, but I I do think there's connections here, and I do think in a way, in a weird way, they reflect back to these tv theme albums from last time, because that's the kind of stuff that was inspiring Zorn, and to a lesser degree Frizzell, and perhaps even lesser degree... Tom Waits. They kind of were tired of the jazz canon and and, and the sanctified masters and were looking around to stuff that people kind of were snobbish about, scorned, overlooked, like, you know, Hank Mancini songs or Mickey Spillane novels, this sort of thing. So they were kind of formative. I'd say that for our generation, this was kind of the cutting edge in the early 90s, right? These, These are the guys that were carrying the torch for A kind of progressive wing of jazz that Went Marcellus was just not interested in participating in.
1: Right.
0: (laughs) At all. Yeah. So, do you have a preference where you want to begin?
1: Why don't we go ahead and start with uh, Zorn because he's kind of the, the flag waver, banner carrier, if you will, for these guys. I'm going to go ahead and start by mentioning that this comes out in what 89 yeah so that was the same year that i saw him live in paris you probably i don't i may have mentioned this on the show once before but i was in paris staying with a friend and i don't know how or why i spotted a poster that listed him doing a concert but i went and i took this friend julie if you can imagine Ah, okay We went to see John Zorn live, and some of the numbers, I didn't realize this until I started listening to this material for the podcast, some of the numbers he played, he played that night. So I I remember Snagglepuss was an encore. Um, Um, and I remember the James Bond theme uh, was played that night and some other stuff. And I remember it being a really joyful night. Zorn live is a treat. He and Joey Baron have a lot of fun. And Joey Baron's a, a, not a very, a, at least in my memories, right? a little guy, a yeah. um, little small guy. And Zorn's rather diminutive too. And the two of them are kind of impish together. And they just were having a blast. But it was a fairly... It was a reasonable-sized ensemble. I don't know how many people were on stage. It's five or six, I think. But it was this kind of stuff. A lot of songs that were 30 seconds long. And then... A few longer numbers, but it was a great, uh, it was well received and it was out, it wasn't in like downtown Paris, it was in one of those edge of the city of Banlieu where people blow stuff up these days apparently or whatever, mm. but it, it was cool. It was a really cool concert, so I didn't realize until I was listening to this stuff, I was like, I heard this stuff live at about the same time this album came out.
0: Wow. Kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I spent the early 90s listening very intently to this record. So when I went back to it, it was it was familiar. Yeah, the entire ensemble, Naked City, and this is also the name of a group. Right. And there's a collected works released by them. But apparently only one of their other albums, and I've not heard any of the others, is anything like this. Uh, some of the other ones are ambient or very thrash focused.
1: They, they should all just be called John Zorn albums because yeah. he's got 85 different groups. You know, he's got Masada, String, Sextet, and Masada, and The Dreamers. He's got a whole bunch of bands. But it's him and Joey Baron, and a lot of the same characters appear on th- – these are Zorn-driven projects, basically. Right. right. By, the, by the way, I wanted to ask you. I don't know if you saw, if you saw it on your iTunes, but when I plug this into my iTunes, the genre yeah. comes up as – and I'm not kidding – Zoo. Oh my God!
0: Yeah, it does not mind too. What is that?
1: Can you explain that? I do not know. It okay, somehow works. I wondered if it was just, I wonder if it was just me. Okay, okay, it's good. I'm they're glad. Animals. They're animals. They're animals. They're just animals. All right. Sorry, I keep interrupting. But go ahead.
0: No, no, no. Uh, so yeah, the group in its entirety is John Zorn on alto saxophone, uh, which he's doing very cruel things too, and it screams in protest. Mm, mm. Bill Frizzell on guitar, and Bill is amazing in, in this yes. era. Wayne Horvitz on keyboards, and he plays a lot of different ones. Fred Frith, bass. Joey Baron, drums, and guest vocalist Yamasuka (laughs) I, which AllMusic says making intense contributions, which is the understatement of the century. Uh, He is a. screamer and so so this record is it's weird there's a stretch in it of seven or eight songs that are all under a minute yeah titles include demon sanctuary hammerhead fuck the facts blood duster speedball so you know you get a sense of it's kind of punk jazz yes and baron is an amazing intense super fast drummer and his drumming does have some connections with hardcore punk so obviously, he's, he's got a lot of flexibility. He can do many things, but that is a mode he can do. Yeah. But some of the other yeah. songs are kind of campier things like uh, yeah. Batman or A Shot in the Dark, which begins as absolute atonal strangeness and then kind mm-hmm. of goes into this groovy kind of booba, 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 you know, kind of Batman-esque mm-hmm. uh, strumming guitar thing. There's also an amazing cover of Ornette Coleman's Lonely Woman yes. that includes the line from Pretty Woman. And it's mm-hmm. pretty awesome. So mm-hmm. yeah, this is, is, I was thinking for some reason today, I made the connection that you might think of this as the London calling of jazz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's very punk in certain ways. And it's also very eclectic. And it's it is jazz, these jazz punk musicians showing all the different genres they can play in. But in Zorn's case, sometimes the genres will be crammed together in the course of two or three minutes. And, and the, the changes are just absolutely Instantaneous. I mean, the technique on display is awe inspiring. I read somewhere that engineers are upset because nowadays many new bands cannot even perform a song all the way through. They're like, well, you'll stitch it together with Pro Tools, but they can't actually do it. (laughs) What these guys are doing does not involve studio trickery. I mean, they can just literally play this shit, which sounds like it was cut and pasted from a computer. The 180 degree turns are just unbelievable from kind of a country music to just 400 beats per minute thrash jazz or punk back to the country music, back to some other genre. It's just amazing. And it's also sometimes exhausting, but I don't know. I think it's kind of a pivotal album. Uh, I, I think arguably it's one of the pivotal albums
1: yeah, for, for that era. Yeah, I, I, all of his major influences are here. I mean, you mentioned the Ornette Coleman song, and Zorn has been a great champion of Coleman. He's he's one of the young. I guess he's not a young turkey anymore because he's older than us but he was one of the young guys championing Coleman as a kind of path forward in the 80s and 90s and it wasn't that Coleman was being ignored but Zorn has a kind of religious fervor about the intensity of his admiration and use of Coleman like he, he is not doing homages when he uses Coleman like he he's Picking up Coleman and then going farther out. Like he's using Coleman as kind of a signpost for for where to go next. So there's that influence here. There's the, he has this lowbrow culture. You know, he's one of the great resuscitators of Ennio Morricone's reputation.
0: Wow, and he makes know? an amazing record. Oh, yes. Really, yes. Uh, probably for me his best work, the big gun yes. down,
1: the big gun down is a, is a five-star album. It's it, like...
0: easily. And I, I think you could argue that this is close. Yeah. If not five, it's pretty fucking pivotal. I, some that of it, it it's, it's weird. One or two of the modes that he did on this record might've been sufficient for a really good record. And it is, it's a CD era release. It's yes. 50 something minutes long, but it's pretty fucking, I mean, if you have not heard this and you're interested in jazz, you should hear this. Yes. And it's, stop. I just, you should hear it. it
1: yeah. It's, somehow. It's, yeah. it's essential. You, you may hear it and then never want to hear it again. <laughs> Very likely. You, but you, you, you do need to hear it. So yeah. So, um, any more coins here the the Sicilian clan and relatively restrained treatment of that song yeah. uh, based on some of the things that Zorn gets up to. And then of course, his, his pop culture influences here, right? So he's got the, the Mancini number, right? Shot in the Dark. He's got the James Bond theme. One of the most tongue-in-cheek songs on here, by the way. The, the James Bond theme that they do is replete with, like, gunshots. And
0: and just... And, and just squalling. And, you know, this yes. is something that struck me. And I think a reason that I've not pursued Zorn stuff to a great degree as much as I love certain albums. And it's, as a player... He's kind of limited. It's not that he mm-hmm. lacks technique, but he tends to have two gears, which is fast and hard and squalling. Yes. And he doesn't have a gift of kind of an emotional trans. Well, I guess the emotion is anger. Right. And he's transparent about that. Right. But there really isn't a second or third or fourth mode for him. It's kind of yeah uh, if, well, if you, want, if you want to two dimensional playing yeah if you
1: want to hear him in, in, in a more three dimensional uh milieu, then I think the albums to go for are uh news for Lulu and more news for Lulu, which right. have the, the, i i wouldn 't say that they have like a broad emotional palette, but the playing is a little more intricate and considered and and right
0: and, and graceful. Those, those are trio albums with guitarist Bill Frisell and trombone player George Lewis. Uh, who is a really interesting guy who's made a couple of very strong avant-garde... You know, his homage to Charlie Parker looks like exactly the kind of thing that made me want to throw up in the back of an alley, and it's actually really, really fucking good. Two immense tracks, lots of synthesizers, but it works as music. Interesting guy, a theoretician, serious trombone player, serious experimenter with electronics, kind of part... I think of him, rightly or wrongly, as part of the AACM wing Mm. uh, of avant-garde jazz.
1: And when you hear those albums, you know the the, the Zorn Trio albums with Frizzell and um,
0: George Lewis. Yeah, it's L-
1: Lewis G's. God, Lewis. Yes, yeah. It, got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. When you hear those, they're inimitable. Like they're they're like in your they're earworms. Like they stick in your head. You know, those are two really good albums, and they're different than this because they're much they're much more sedate. The
0: and, and the theme of those is uh, along with having some really hot shots of of uh, the from the movie for Lulu, which is like from the twenties silent right. film is that he's going back and finding hard bop standards by people like Sonny Clark and Hank right. Mobley, right. who he feels like were vastly underestimated, and resurrecting those. And then he's got an album called Voodoo that is entirely devoted to Sonny Clark. And right. he also has an album, Spy Versus Spy, with yes. Tim Byrne, just in case your ears weren't scorched enough on alto, right. which is an homage to Ornette Coleman. And, and right. again, there it, it's I admire that record, but that particular record is, again, so intense and so, you know, it's miniatures all at pretty much the same intensity level, which is 11, and it kind of misses (laughs) some of the point of Ornette Coleman. It's it's weird. I mean, it's kind of like, what if punk jazzers were to celebrate him and kind of squish him down to one or two elements? Now, I'm not saying that Zorn cannot play his horn. I want to be clear. He certainly can. It's just that I don't know that just emotionally or temperamentally he's as interesting a player as other people with equal or lesser techniques can be just because it seems to be very, uh, along a certain couple emotional lines, but, but I think it's, it's thrilling here. This is sassy. It's punky. It's genre hopping. It is virtuoso. I mean, my God, the playing on it is just unbelievable. It is the kind of playing that stands out as just Head and shoulders above most excellent jazz playing. You're like, holy shit. And it's got attitude in spades. And at the same time, there is, its I don't think cynicism is quite the right word, but there is a kind of a postmodern, everything's ironic. Everything is, it's, you're showing how cool you are by your taste kind of thing. And I, I don't know. I just eventually found that whole of being kind of exhausting. It seemed like a bit of a dead end. Right. You but can see it's how amazing. it would have been
1: appealing as but. an avenue in jazz in 87. You right. know, As, as like, a, you know, hey, here's a way we can go. Here's a new thing we can do. Let's try this. And so that posture maintained over a 30-year career is irritating. And I, I don't think it would be fair to reduce Zorn's career to that by any stretch. But as a gesture uh, at one time, it's very powerful and it did seem like a way forward. I I for one like a lot of the, I like a lot of the, a lot of the Masada versions of Masada that that, that he has created. And I think, you can actually hear him playing lyrically from time to time. I would agree.
0: And and Dave Douglas, the yes. well known trumpeter, is, is typically on that project. Is Barron on that too? I feel like maybe Joey Barron
1: yes, as well. Usually, like not, not always. But yeah, yeah,
0: Zorn and Barron have a pretty strong hookup. And again, these guys are kind of downtown New York avant-garde players in an era when that was a rough place to be i mean that it wasn't
1: the the playground it is now it meant something to say you were downtown and i i want to say something about baron too he's the player this is going to sound i don't know tell me what you think about this but the guy he reminds me of as a mainstream if you will jazz player is paul modian he has that same ability to sort of control tempo and to do a lot of different kinds of things. I don't know if he's a composer the way Modian is, but, mm. or is it motion? I always forget. We keep changing. I, th- I think it
0: became motion. The original pronunciation was Modian, and he just gave up. I
1: think he gave up. Oh, so I, so I was right saying Modian, yeah. He reminds me of like a, a Modian who can play punk or thrash in addition to all the other stuff he can do. I mean, I think he's a monumental drummer. He, it, is, it, right. he is a great jazz drummer.
0: And yeah, listening to this now in, in good headphones or whatever, it, it is—and I, I was thinking because I have these— absurdly priced and yet somehow wonderful, MoFi releases of second great quintet albums, a couple of them, Nefertiti and one other, uh, the Miles Davis Quintet. And part of the benefit you get from these ridiculously over-engineered albums is being able to hear Tony Williams with a kind of clarity and focus that's just amazing. And this is what you get with Joey Barron. He is an artist. I mean, he's musical. He's also crazy and funny and extremely technically adept. And he can he can play thrash. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just listening to his cymbal work is oh god. Think yes. of joy and and even more so on the on the trio album with Frizzell because uh, the bass playing is is fine and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's often interactive. But I mean, uh, the two powering figures there and i i I don't mean to denigrate the bassist at all but but your ears tend to be drawn to frizzell and and baron and there are times he's just he's just cymbal playing and it's like my god this is good this is just it's nourishing it's more Mm. than rhythm keeping it's more than tasteful it is adding to the the beauty of my life right now Uh, it's better well let's
1: go ahead and turn to the bill frizzell live album This is one I've had for a while, and this was your first time with it, right? Well,
0: and, and just before we—and I'm, okay. I'm going to find myself saying this a lot. These albums, unusually, I'd say, especially for a young jazz listener, I, I, I'm going to say if you have the time, I mean, you can probably stream them. I don't know where the fuck they are. I don't know what Zorn's policy or such policy is about streaming, but, but find them. It is worth hearing yes. them. You may not like them, and I'm completely on board with you. If you say, finally, this is too snarky or it's too— wild or it's too abrasive but you need to hear them if you have not heard of these albums find them anyway yeah well it's weird i it turned out i had very confusingly an mp3 version of this i don't think i'd listened to much that it somehow sucked down the cover art for an encounter of bill frizzell with elvis costello Oh, God. Now, it wasn't that album. I I assume he must have met with Elvis Costello at this point. He's been in bed with everybody, right? You know, I mean, (laughs) I was like, oh, there's Yo-Yo Ma. Well, shit. Okay, get over it. Get in that other bed because, you know, we can't. We're both sluts, but we, we can't be sluts together. But. In any case, I was confused about what it was. I didn't think I had this one. I thought, well, the only live album I've got by Bill Frisell is with, oh, but it turned out to be the same one. But I had not really listened to it. And this is a fantastic album. So yes. if nothing else, thank you for getting me a standard res version of it and drawing my attention to it. It is, it's monumental. It's great.
1: Yeah, and I'll say this by way of introduction to it. At the end of my American Culture and Jazz class, the last week, I played them different things. I showed them different videos of people playing that I thought here is potential future directions for jazz, right? Because you know we'd done a sort of standard trot, and one of the things I showed them was a video of this trio playing. I think the Madonna song.
0: Is it like Live to Tell? He does Live to Tell. Okay,
1: Live to Tell, which their version of it is fucking amazing you know because they start inside and then they go very far outside and they go like so far outside and then when they come back to the melody and it is just the most amazing they create so much tension over a period of like five or six minutes and when they come back to the melody everyone in the room's head was bobbing you know they're like you know you could almost you just felt like this enormous release These were people, many of whom had some experience of jazz, but not an experience of like downtown stuff. And they were like, this is good. You know, most of them were like, this is really cool. Because they could hear the how it starts with the melody and then it just right, right very good. far away yeah. into outer space. And then he came back with this really powerful resolution. And Frizzell is just an incredible technician. And he looks like a third grade librarian or something. Yeah, like, yeah as
0: you pointed out, he looks a little bit like my father. yeah <laughs> he's, he's kind He does
1: of look like your dad. He
0: square does. of aspect. And, and just to orient people, uh, Zorn is born in 53, Frizzell in 51, Baron in 55, so ah,
1: Joey's that old?
0: Yeah, they're all wow. very much cohorts. They're I mean... just very much the same generation. And so this album is cut when Frizzell is roughly 40. And I don't know, my weird experience was with Frizzell, I loved, I'm trying to think, I had an ECM album by of his that I really liked. I liked a lot of his appearances in other people's projects. Loved him with Thorn, etc. And then I got Have a Little Faith. Oh, yeah. And I just don't like that album much you know, really? the album, yeah, and maybe I need to go back, but to me, I just realized, I think I was listening to, oh, interestingly, the, uh, instead of Live to Tell here, the person that that did the uh, database called it Live to Hell. Very cute.
2: <laughs> well,
0: but he covers Madonna, he covers yeah. Have a Little Faith in Me, which is a John Hyatt song. He covers yes. some folk songs he does, No Mo by Sonny Rollins, which we hear on this live album. And I just realized, I think maybe it was Have a Little Faith, or maybe it was Live to Tell. I, I, I was getting bored. I just oh. felt like it was low energy. I did not cathect to that. A Rambler was the ECM album, which is earlier right. effort. And it is a very quiet, it is yes. not full of distortion, it's not full of energy music, but I find it charming with Zorn, he really can get energetic, and, and the live trio album, he get. There's some distortion going on. There's some quasi Hendrix
1: moves. There. Although if just, you see if you see videos of him live, he's just standing there in a sweater. Kind of, oh yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, he, just, he, his affect as a player is really. He's
0: not a demonstrative minimal. cat, not at all.
1: No. no. <laughs> he's not put on the parachute pants. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not.
0: That is not his his thing at all.
1: He's in joggers and a plaid shirt.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. And he is—he is an amazing player. Who, if you just looked at him, I was wondering—and you know, maybe of the great triumvirate of that era, which is methany Frizzell, Schofield, he might be the, the the clearest path to like a Kurt Rosenwinkel, who I think of as kind of the guitar hero of the next generation. Uh, he's my sure, favorite
1: of those three that you mentioned. I think that's, he is like, too. Hands From, down, I, I prefer him to those other two guys. It's I, not that uh, I don't like them, but. Right,
0: exactly. And I like Sko in certain settings. In fact, he does an amazing duet album with Sko that I like a lot. Mm. But, but Sko is hit or miss, and Metheny, certainly. There's some oh, albums yeah. I love and some that just great. But Frizzell, yeah, I just felt like, and you know, I, I have not heard him recently, so I see an album that's like he's covering John Lennon, and I'm just like, I'm just not interested by that description. It might be great, but something about the sound of that project sounds really dad rocky and I'm a dad and I like, you know, I mean, it, I, I fall for that
2: stuff, but I
0: just, yeah, it's weird. And I really, Frizzell is somebody I feel like that live helps him. Yes. And I, I like it when he combines the, the weird shimmering wobbly, you know, another player that I think he, you can see as a, as a source of is Mary Halverson, right? Yes. It's, you know, that kind of, uh, mm-hmm detuned or twanging are the wobbling sounds the microtonality i, I feel like he's probably the, the most obvious ancestor to what she does they're not identical players right. again i'm not accusing either Rosenwinkel or hoverson of being derivative or imitated right. no i'm just saying that if you're going to listen to that previous generation for has an amazing toolbox boy when he gets going if he just lets himself let, rip a little bit, I, he's awesome. And I, I love this album. So thank you for yeah. not wanting to hurt a lot. So anyway, I'll stop ranting. But, but Yeah,
1: ranting. he's for me, what he's a master of is he's a master of creating those shimmering textures. And he's he's just brilliant, I think, at tension and release. And and he's best when he's playing with someone like Baron, who they just have a kind of rapport yeah. that's fucking telepathic. You can just hear the two of them thinking along the same lines and I'm a sucker for this kind of building tension, releasing tension. And my God, I mean, he just hits the sweet spot for me over and over and over again. I love this album. I think it's a great album, and it, it definitely benefits. He benefits from being in a live setting. I just think the stakes are higher. I, I, I think he's more engaged. You, you can hear the tension. I think in the ensemble, and it's a productive tension. It's not. It's not corrosive. It's these guys are pushing and pulling and 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 working together, and it's it's a fantastic album. Is there any particular tracks that jump out at you that you really like? <laughs> the most
0: here? Well, I, in terms of that tension and release, when he goes from Crumb, which I assume was movie music to do with that artist, because Friselle does use do some soundtrack projects. Mm, I
1: don't know. know.
0: I don't know. To No Mo," which is yeah. an old Sonny Rollins blues line. That's just amazing it, because there are this really out, really screechy things, and then it kind of slowly gets sucked into the orbit of this familiar, to me anyway, bebop tune. Right. But it's constantly kind of pulling at the seams there and it's about ready to burst free. And there's some wacky atonality in things, and it kind of just boils along and it kind of gets out of orbit a little bit, but then it comes back. Just fantastic. And to me, that is just a prime example of taking well known materials and stretching them in a way that involves joy and fun as well as tension and atonality and challenge and doesn't seem to be an exercise or an unnecessary effort to kind of deny the fun of the music. Sometimes I feel like avant-garde musicians look at if they're going to cover, quote-unquote, something that's more familiar or something that's more tonal. It's like, how do I suck the fun out of this? I've got to make sure that no fun escapes. Mm. It's a black hole for fun. We've got to make, you know, <laughs> and even Osby, who I like a lot, you know, he'll take like the Lee Morgan song, which is a really famous one. God, I can't think of it right now. Sidewinder? Yeah, it's like the Sidewinder. It's like, well, I'm going to break up the rhythm. And it's like, you know what? Don't do that. Right. I mean, don't do that. I, you know, find a way to like pull this thing to pieces, but still keep that funky groove. That's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear you showing that if you play this in seven four, you can't snap your fingers to it. I fucking know that. What I want you to do is take it and then take it to space, but but give me some of that down home gritty fun still. Just give me enough dollops of art and and challenge and invention and unpredictability that is exciting and fun and and it's stretching me you're able to express yourself better because you've taken off certain restraints. Dot, you've you've made yourself find a way to suck the fun out of it. And for me, Frizzell, constantly, it, it walks that tightrope and does it brilliantly. And this is a textbook, brilliant live trio album. And it's gotta be one of the top albums of the decade. And there are thousands of live jazz albums, but very few of them, and often with great personnel. I mean, you look at the lineup and you're like, this can't miss, and it doesn't miss, but it's not fantastic it's really really good right. and i feel like this one is fantastic i mean this is a special night special group the chemistry is fantastic you don't want to miss this one you want to search it out and you know i'm anymore especially after that 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 cut around 90 i don't consistently get that kind of thrill from frizzell's playing. i feel like it's retreated and it's more about texture and it's more introspective. In some ways, it just seems more mainstream. And there's nothing wrong with that. At some point, the cardigan calls to you, and you just have to keep it on. And he really does wear cardigans,
1: people. We're not making this shit up. Yeah, you should see the pictures. He yeah, he really does look like this. I mean, I'm not kidding when I say like a middle school gym teacher. He's just very, no, that's not even a gym teacher. More like a biology
0: teacher. He is a bio you know? teacher. I mean, he makes me look like the most interesting man in the world. It's like, you know, <laughs> if it's for sell or me to sell Mexican beer, they're going to pick me. I'm just, that's how bad Probably. it is. It's, and it's that's true. kind He's... of sad anybody else in the world that they're going to win the other thing i'd say is there are moments here where you get glimpses of that kind of montage quick cut juxtaposition that zorn's about i always feel like here it's more about developing from one mode to another rather than just cramming them together with sharp sharp cuts right but there's something of that going on here but just in a more traditionally organic quote-unquote way anyway just yeah this is another one and this is unusual for one of our shows i i Obviously, you have to get the Naked City soundtrack from the last last show, but you can listen to it and want to die. But but these, I, I say, get this again. Listen to this album if you have not heard Frizzell stuff. Excellent starting place. It should be in your collection or it should be on your streaming favorites. It it's fucking good.
1: Worth also pointing out here that apart from the couple of numbers we mentioned, the Ornette Coleman riff, uh, this is all originals. These are all Frizzell original tunes. And sometimes we bitch and moan about people who do albums of all originals because we think, gosh, those just aren't very good tunes. But I don't have that feeling here at all. And I think Frizzell's a pretty good composer. And I feel like when he's playing with a sympathetic ensemble like he is here, this stuff is interesting. And I don't know if he's what you would call someone who writes standards, but I, I I don't think anything here is negligible. Like even the shorter numbers, like when we go, I think it's terrific. I think it's fantastic. It is,
0: it is, and it it um it, it's yeah. good on Rambler and it's good in a different way here. Yeah, so I agree. Yeah,
1: yeah. He's I don't know. I mean, I is there a song that you'd say that that he's written that would sort of enter the jazz canon? I'm, if he has, I'm not aware of it. But nothing here, I would say, like when you hear it, you go, well, that's just a throwaway. It's a really well-programmed evening, and he zips around. Like you said, he zips around from different modes. Some Delta Blues here. There's some out, freak-out stuff. He, he can play in a lot of different modes, but unlike Zorn, the, the cuts aren't jump cuts. It's, it, it's, it's, it's more slow and deliberate the way the, the changes are developed. It, it
0: seems less devilish and punkish and po- pomo, and it seems more felt yeah and organic and and both of those modes have appeal i'm not saying in a sense I was, he
1: can play in both that's the he amazing can. thing oh, yeah. he, he he's the there.
0: guitarist
1: on he city he absolutely so he does some he, amazing shit there he can do both things which is fascinating
0: and you know the other thing to remark is this is an electric trio and that he's playing electric guitar the bassist is playing electric bass but i don't think that one out of a hundred people would come away saying, oh, this is not jazz. I mean, to me, this feels jazz fucking jazz. I mean, this is about jazz. It is electrified jazz. It's not using that instrumentation to kind of escape the basic tenets or goals or joys of what jazz is about. It embraces them wholeheartedly. There's a lot of interaction. There's a lot of creativity in the fly. There's lots of just fantastic improvisation. It's jazz of the moment in a way that the neoclassicist never really could get. All right, it's time for our vocal wow. You know, I'm saying that. <laughs> Tom Waits is a
1: vocalist.
0: He makes he, noises he, with his mouth.
1: He does. He has many voices. He does. You know, there's not just the one. There's, oh. there's like a dozen. He's got so many.
0: Some um, of them are Satan talking right up his ass. Some of them are. Uh... So this is, you know, I just realized, I don't know that I've got right now a, a copy of Swordfish Trombone or knew it well. For some reason, I feel like the album I really got to know him on was Frank's Wild Years.
1: Yeah, same here. That's the one I know best.
0: And then I have Uh, his singer-songwriter phase, uh, several of his—I just picked up used LPs way back in the day. I mean, in my first round of getting LPs, Blue Valentine and the the Double Live album, which is hilarious
1: in terms of the jokes. Uh, Yeah, he's a funny, funny stage presence.
0: And he was also in films. You know, he was Renfield— in, he's in
1: a good actor Francis he's better than you
0: think yeah Dracula well he certainly out-acted Winona Ryder
1: well I you know I I kind of like that I, that's that's a version of that that's a version of that story that is remarkably faithful to the novel I kind of like it and maybe I'm just smitten with Winona Ryder's breasts but I, I right
0: yeah like it, it. but well, he's
1: he was he's a John Lurie he's in a bunch of right yeah down by movies line. with Jim Jarmish movies and right. the one yeah he's one two or three of those I think
0: so. and he's a, a perennial hipster favorite. He has been around oh, forever. Yeah. He's been recording since the 70s. And what happened was after a series of kind of barroom poet albums where he was playing this kind of down and out poet of the
1: demimonde and, and I believe I, he's from here. He's from San Diego. Yeah, so
0: yeah, I think so.
1: I cuz uh, I got to start here
0: anyway. There's a big fan of his who was talking about the fact he was a San Diego native uh, at, at wabash that that played uh, I think it was Night Hawks at the diner. I think that's or, right. Anyway, in the mid-80s, after releasing a string of these albums and, and writing some brilliant songs, but as Robert Christigal, the rock critic, said, in this mode, he was so full of shit that Portisans should name a model after him. You know, <laughs> And he is a very penetrating writer. I think he is very smart about weights. The problem with weights at some level is he's always acting, right? And right. maybe it's his strength as well, but, but it is very much an act. This is, he is another eclectic. He's slightly older than these, the rest of these guys. Uh, just by a couple of years, he's born in 40, uh, Tom Waits born in 1949. So just a few years older than Zorn Frizzell. I mean, just a couple of years older than Frizzell. And his Points of reference early on are kind of, you know, Dennis Hopper paintings. Well, and
1: I think he's he, the best way to think of him is he's more like almost of a cabaret performer. So. He
0: becomes that. Yeah, that's the thing is it after yeah. being this barroom poet, he goes into this kind of quasi Kurt Vile avant garde phase. The instrumentation gets much stranger and more abrasive and just more out. It is like this demented cabaret. Yeah. And he embraces all these different voices and modes, and it's eclectic. He's not singing opera. He's not singing, you know, a lot of, he's not singing, and some, some might argue at all. I, I was reminded to some degree of like Al Jolson or, for, yeah. uh, or uh, Louis Armstrong, this kind of overdone growl and Rain Dogs is probably one of his most successful records. Some people think it's his greatest. Some vote for Swordfish Trombone. I think Frank's Wild Years is a little bit too unified to be many people's favorites. I've always liked that album quite well. It's a small ensemble. There's, sometimes there's accordion. There's weirdly thumped percussion. And Mark Ribot, the guitar player, appears on this album. He's not on Swordfish Trombones and is also heavily featured on Frank's Wild Years. And he's just kind of angular, plucky... And he's part of the
1: downtown scene.
0: Very much.
1: Right. right,
0: And I kind of prefer this. I I don't have a lot of his solo stuff, and the rootless Cosmopolitan's album I've always got is Let's Let Me Frigid. So I thought, well, let's bring in this other good downtown figure and talk about it in the context of an album that is itself genre-hopping. I mean, Waits, in some ways, from a slightly different angle, is doing the Zorn thing. He's not about juxtaposing moods in one song but he's hopping from genre to genre in various songs and to some degree like Zorn, though not so much like Frizzell, the package comes with this idea that there's going to be emotional distance. This is not Tom Waits explaining his existence in any way, shape, or form under metaphorical guise or directly. This is Tom Waits acting a series of roles and telling a series of stories. And I like this album pretty well. I don't listen much to
1: Rain Dogs. I thought, thought it was pretty good. I don't know whether where it stands in the canon for you, for me where i start with this album is the poetry so i unlike maybe some people i, I like you i started with Waits with uh frank's wild years and that's probably the album of his that i know the best but having said that i like the early weight stuff quite a bit and the first couple of albums where he's kind of a barroom poet the the singing is indifferent the musicianship is okay but to me, what's kind of amazing is the, the poetry. He is a, a, he's a poet. That is the best way to think about, about him. He's a very self-consciously thoughtful lyricist. And I think he saves himself from being maudlin by embracing irony at any point where he is about to take on a character or story where he could perhaps open himself up to being considered too sentimental, right? Yeah. It's a very strategic move on his part. It's very smart. And he's got the acting chops to kind of pull it off in performance. So even here, he, he kind of does that. Anytime anything starts to get a little too hinky, the irony it ramps up. So on a song like Ninth and Hennepin, right? Suddenly we're in film noir land and the irony is troweled on thick and fast. And this is kind of a a way of, I don't know, it distances the listener in a way that his early albums didn't. So I find it, I like this album a great deal. Uh, I think it's a very good album and I really enjoy most of the songs here quite a bit, but there's some distance here. Oh yeah. uh, Between the listener and it's this self-conscious ironic actorly move that he does to save himself from the charge of ripe sentimentality and he was a little more open to seeming sentimental and to being vulnerable in that way in his early albums where he's just kind of like a barroom poet. And in some of those songs, he's just hard on his sleeve. And I kind of prefer him a little more sincere. I like mm-hmm. it when he kind of lets the veil down. And
0: Well, know, and the musicians on those albums are the same guys from those soundtracks later you know it is right. there are some heavy duty california cats there there are right. some serious jazz players these guys are more the downtown avant garde crowd that's exactly right um, he's
1: he you know on and on his live albums after the barroom phase when you hear him he's he's doing jazz like he knows what jazz is he can play jazz um he's playing with players who do jazz he talks to them like they're a jazz band you know he sees himself as fronting a weirdly cabaret oriented jazz band And yeah, you're right. Here, it's this more downtown sound. And and Ribot's guitar does a lot of that sort of... Right, yeah. Let me... I don't know what you call that, like Disney on crack. They have this, this sort of... Well, he's
0: he's he's not quite atonal, but he right. very he's very outside close. the court. He's real <laughs> close. So yeah, this weird thing where he's playing in these recognizable genres, but where you'd get, if you were hearing a, a local band play a sea chanty or whatever the fuck, you, you they'd be very much in the pocket and in the mode and in the key signature.
1: Exactly. <laughs> these and... guys
0: are... Taking it the fuck out to space to some degree. I mean, they're still chug along, but yeah, Rabot's guitars are, are. It's like a weird parody through a prism of what an ordinary guitar solo in the genre would be. It's like what you know, and, and I like them. They're fun. I mean, he's he's not on every track here, but he's a pretty major player.
1: Which song is it? I just cannot remember. There's a song here, and I'm trying to rack my brain as I look at the titles. One of these songs here. So I is to it. I was like. This is Tom Waits version of a, it might be, it might be the train song. It might be a downtown train. I'm like, this is Tom Waits version of a Bruce Springsteen song. Oh, absolutely. I I would agree. It's like, it's like, he's like, I can do this. This is, I'm going to do, you know, and, but instead of cars, it's going to be a train. And
0: and (laughs) it's the only time I thought Bruce Springsteen could sing this better. Because God knows, I hate. I. I just. One thing well, I don't like. like, like one of his stuff.
1: most covered songs. It's, it turns out. But you know, yeah, Rod Stewart had a hit with it.
0: And, and, and yeah, Waits is a major songwriter. Yeah. There's no way around it. He's written a lot of songs that people have covered, people who can sing nicer, yes. and there are just a lot of little gems that he's done. And he's notable. I mean, he's a talented guy. Now, not everything he writes is priceless, of course. He's very prolific. But he has written a, more than a handful of standards. And like Holly Cole, the Canadian Chanteuse, did an mm-hmm. album all devoted to his stuff. And he's around. He is, he's someone who's gotten in the lexicon of modern songwriters. Yeah, this album is 54 minutes long. And I think the front half is fantastic. I think the back half has its moments but gets rockier. And when he really tries, it's overripe. It's just almost, it's beyond parody. of this, uh, you know. It's my is my my shoes, yeah. Vibrato thick, super emotive, but at the same time in quotation marks, singing that he brings to things like Lay Down My Head.
1: Blind Love.
0: Blind slight... Love. It's just painful. Yeah, there are some performances here that are kind of hard to take anywhere I lay my head. Blind Love, Downtown Train, where it's bizarre. As I said, I mean, one thinks of people like Al Jolson to a degree. Yeah. It's so seemingly affected and so really just almost painful to listen to. That said, when he's telling these kind of story songs in this brechtian manner with these down and out low lifes. And whispering them or chanting them yes. or singing them like a carnival barker. I mean, he's fantastic.
1: That's He's in the pocket there. And it's songs like, so the songs for me that work that way Walking Spanish, which has given us a fucking metaphor. Like, that's a cultural metaphor now, Walking Spanish. Down well, and the Cemetery Polka, which is someone <laughs> who deals with polka. a stage. It's hilarious, you know. Yeah, it's brilliant. And though, uh, Clap Hands for, works in that same yeah, way. Yeah, Clap
0: Hands is great. Now, Cemetery Polka is this very stentorian.
1: Duh, 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 you
0: know, He's kind right. of barking it out in, in a very crude, one-to-the-floor rhythm. Right. And, and again, it, it's none of this singing is is about self-expression. It's all about acting roles. And yeah. at the same time, celebrating, acting them with garish makeup and green lights and the sense that this is both unsettling and artificial and it knows it and it's trying to freak you out as much as entertain you. And it's pushing your buttons because Mark Rabose are going it has this avant-garde cred to it, this edge to it. Though really, most of these songs are fairly traditional. And, you know, he's not finally an avant-garde figure in the sense of somebody who is really trying to pull apart popular song form or sprout nonsense or bring on players who are completely atonal. It's just this weird, I don't know, alternate undersea world. So anyway, I, I liked it a lot. I, I like Frank Frank's Wild Years is maybe a little bit more unified. Another great... Quote from Robert Christgau: He said, "When Rudy Valley sang through a megaphone in the 1920s, he was trying to sound modern. When Tom Waits did it in the 1990s, he's trying to sound old." (laughs) And there is that sense that he is—he's trying to bring back sounds from the '78 era and strange instruments and accordions and treatments of his voice. Apparently, one album—I don't think I've heard it—involves these violins that have attached. Sounding cones to them. Uh, I guess it, I've never heard of such a thing, but I guess back in the twenties or some other time, they tried to amplify the violin acoustically by putting on the equivalent of a phonograph cone or speaker. And and so he's yeah, it's all about an alien world. And if you're a theater kid or somebody who likes the avant garde or just wants to feel stretched, but also likes the appeal of rock solid songcraft, you might really find yourself getting into Tom
1: Wade. I, maybe the another way another. Touchstone or reference would be, uh, for me, Captain Beefheart. Yes, yes. He's like the Captain Beefheart that you could actually listen to (laughs) on the car stereo. Yeah, they're both
0: doing these weird parodies of Howling Wolf, but he is much more a traditional songwriter, and his band is much more about creating performances of songs. There's an alienation effect, but it's not the alienation of dealing with someone from outer space who is just completely from a different world and that doesn't really, it's not trying to make sense or connect with you at all, as Beefheart is, and is also, frankly, uh, breaking up structure in a much more avant-garde and challenging way. I mean, his bands are rehearsed to the nines and playing almost impossible music. Waits is is beefheart light in that sense. But, but you know, I I think in, he's produced more useful art. I mean, more art that, that right. does something for the human listener uh, so, than Beefheart. So
1: a few more jazz credits to be mentioned on this album. We haven't talked about it, but Bobby Praveet, is ah. here playing the percussion here. So there's a name to conjure with. Greg Cohen, who is another member of Masada, he's the mm-hmm. bass player on a lot of Zorn's Masada albums. Okay, He's playing bass here, and he's playing string bass, not electric bass. Weirdly, Keith Richards appears here. Did you yeah, know that? Yeah, I heard
0: that. Yeah, the somewhere. The собacal
1: which sounds exactly right. <laughs> He's like, Tom Waits making Keith Richards sound good. Yeah. Another downtown character, Robert Quine, is here on guitar. Mm, Um, John Lurie plays Alto on the album, Ah. believe it or not. And uh, two other names, one of much shame and another more interesting, G.E. Smith of the old Saturday Night Live band. He played (laughs) a few guitar licks here, asshole. And um, on bass, Tony Levin. from. Ooh, okay. Yeah, he's definitely uh, avant-garde. Downtown figure he's in his King own way. my King Crimson hero from the. He age. is a monster. He is a motherfucking great player. Anyway,
0: yeah, he is. A, he's a major figure from that era. He's on some Peter Gabriel stuff, and he is crucial to the sound of. Yes. Third great King Crimson incarnation, uh, especially Discipline, which is one of the great prog he's rock albums of all time. Astonishing,
1: astonishing. Yeah. Anyway, player. so this so this album has some serious jazz cred. Well, it's absolutely. Not, yeah. just, he's, not just Mark Rebo, but
0: yeah, these are top shelf musicians, and. I think critics were happy because instead of this weird quasi-sentimental, quasi-beat poet pose, Waits was now getting avant-garde enough that they felt like he had aesthetic credentials and they didn't have to feel guilty about listening to him. And this was new and it was unexpected because he made roughly the same kind of album for a number of years. And so they're very, very exciting and supportive about this. And I think it is fun music, but yeah, towards the end here, I mean, one, it's just that Rarely is a 54-minute CD a good idea. Even Naked City, which I think is pretty strong throughout, you wonder would it have been even better at 45 minutes? Now, the the, the, the Frizzell album—I don't care how long it is—it it, doesn't—it should not be any shorter. But but it's it's rare that you can sustain interest for quite that long. But anyway, it's definitely it's a great starting place. Look it up if you've never heard Tom Waits. Again, you might decide this guy just annoys me.
1: Exactly. On uh, Rate Your Music, one of the reviews on the uh, chat box on the side of his page talks about how the person feels about him, the, the way they feel about Joanna Newsom. And, uh, uh, as someone who cannot stand Joanna Newsom, I know, I'll I know. talk about this in Pop Matters later. You'll see you the know, light someday, my son. I totally get that reference. You, know? <laughs> like you I could imagine you listening to him and going, no, just no, this is...
0: Which, but I, I think in the sense of a voice that many perfectly fine people that I sympathize with deeply could find unendurable. I think that right. the difference being Newsome is very much presenting herself as someone who is expressing herself strange as it is, as a kind of psych folk figure. She does tell stories, but they are stories expressing a worldview. And I think Waits is very much more a figure of masks a figure of oh yeah that's uh, fair yeah and, and I, I like them both you know i listened to frank's wild years again recently and yeah there is a period when you just and maybe not everybody reaches this but as i get to be an old man i'm like you know i just want to listen to somebody that can fucking sing now <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not that he can't it's not that he's you know it is just extremely affected but yeah it's just like you know i what he's signaling is I'm artsy, this is thoughtful, this is all a pose, this is ironic, this is pomo. Think about it, and that's great. But sometimes they're like, just fucking sing, dude. Yeah, you know, I just I just want to hear somebody that fucking sings.
1: And he you know, he yeah. can. Um, he can. Yeah, he's he's, he's deliberately you know, screws with his voice but oh a lot yeah he can he, he actually can sing and if you for those who w- want to hear that for those who want to s- hear him less in cabaret mode more in performance mode i would recommend either his of his first two albums closing time or the heart of saturday night mm. or the live album nighthawks at the diner nighthawks at the diner you get the benefit of the patter <laughs> which is <laughs> fucking hilarious is he fun. is he is a hipster on crack he is incredibly funny and he but, knows uh, it. And it's, it's. Yes. There's a he's, level. He's of, adjoining. He's totally enjoying himself.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it is a completely. His attitude is understood. It's got layers. He is absolutely aware of what he's doing. He's having a grand time with the audience. They're having a grand time with him, and it's very funny. Yeah,
1: Yeah, but if you want to hear him sing, listen to the first first two studio albums or Nighthawks at the Diner, because he will sing on that as well. On those albums, he's a little more hard on his sleeve, a little more emotionally transparent. And then he stops doing that. That's just not what he does after that. That's, that's like a mode that he was in, and he's past that
0: now. But, but universally, I think in both phases, he focuses on... The Nighthawks, the, the oddities, yes. the down and outers, the colorful marginal figures. I just want Tom Waits album about, like, had to refinance my mortgage.
1: Hard oh, to get a good
0: rate. The BMW needs an oil chain.
1: Uh, for my money, my yeah. favorite song by him is something off of his first album called Closing Time, which is this amazing little ballad. It's just fucking heartbreaking, called Martha, and it's about an old man calling a woman whom on the phone and he's talking to her on the phone that they haven't talked to each other in a long time. And, and they used to be lovers. It's a, it's a, it's a telephone song and it is heartrending. and there's no irony in it. You know, you know, yeah. it. it's a mask in the sense that he's playing an old guy, but it's, beautiful i mean it's a beautiful song and it's emotionally transparent and it will fucking break your heart it's an amazing little minute song it's full of songs like that
0: right yeah and it's yeah the thing with him is a sense that ultimately this is a guy that has a big heart for these kind of noir characters right but they
1: take over that's that's where he ends up
0: they do and I got to admit, I mean, I, I I probably gravitate more towards a kind of performer like this than a traditional singer songwriter who wants to bear a soul. But at times I really would like to hear that, you know, I think you could do something just as heart rending and effective about, I don't know, some upper middle class guy in Connecticut. You know, it just mm-hmm. it, it is there's a certain uh, kind of hipsterism in the choices he makes in of
1: subject matter that you know who should get together and like just work together. Gregory Porter should do an album of Tom Waits covers. Oh, man. Uh. Tom Waits should do an album of Gregory Porter songs.
0: Well, one thing I will say is that (laughs) the interesting thing about this is the story songs tend to, you think, they they strike me as the kind of thing that would just unfold verse after verse and Mm -hmm. then add detail to the world. But then he tends to go back and repeat the first segment of them. And and all this is bad, but it's just interesting to me because it just seems like they, they strike me as the kind of songs that don't need any kind of chorus. They don't really... Right, that just un- unfold. There's kind of like stories or-, or accretions of detail, but I guess for a sense of rhyming or, or structural uh, resonance, he-, he goes back and and uh, repeats sections uh, from the lines, and it's it's odd. Anyway. If you've so, not yeah, heard but, Tom Waits, listen to Tom Waits. I, again, you, you may but, not like Tom Waits. I, I get that. But but give him a listen. He's worth don't it. Don't you think
1: it would be fun if Gregory Porter did like a bunch of Tom Waits, you oh, know, so mask songs and Tom Waits did a bunch of, you know, aching, but
0: completely sentimental his, right.
1: Gregory Porter songs.
0: Yeah, his warm <laughs> sincerity and then Tom Waits.
1: It could, it could be a double album. I'm a
0: line. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Pace in my cage, swing, you know. Yeah, or maybe just some duets.
1: Yeah, he uh, Tom oh, yeah. Waits is oh, duetted with
0: Crystal Gale, so why not Greg Porter? <laughs>
1: that's uh, so. That's a. I have that album, Tom Waits Crystal Gale album. Yeah, you and it's or, a... or Paul gave it to me. Uh, it's a soundtrack album to one of the not so good movies in the Francis Ford Coppola canon, starring right. I think Jeff Bridges. It's not a it's not a terrible movie. It's just blah.
0: Anyway, but very the on.
1: soundtrack is the best thing about the movie. Yeah,
0: very <laughs> odd.
1: Actually, quite good.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure I'm completely sold on Crystal Gale as in a motor. But anyway, yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't start there with Tom. But but no. absolutely, there's there's a lot of strong first period stuff. And second, be aware that there is this kind of watershed in the early 80s when he changes his modes. But he's somebody worth looking up. And uh, I, I think that there's a lot to think about and enjoy and chew over and perhaps some to annoy on this album.
1: If you want hipster cred... It doesn't come any creditor than than yeah, Tom, right? Yeah, I mean, so like you know, so in the music circles, you just can't say a bad thing about him.
0: You while know, you're is, waxing your mustache and putting on your bowler hat or whatever. I, yes, yeah, he is
1: to an, Tom waits. Uh, it's unimpeachable. You won't hear music heads go, "That fucking phony Tom waits." They're like, ah. Oh, he oh. was a hipster when Brooklyn was still dangerous. Exactly. He is Absolutely. like the hipster god. And so there is no bad thing you can say about him in most circles. You can yes. say something bad now. <laughs> and I thought,
0: you know, I listened to this record very briefly. It was excitedly reviewed, positively reviewed. This massive two CD set on Winter and Winter by Yuri Kane called the Goldberg Variations. And of course, there was a huge, I think of the 70s, this album, or this album, this book called, it was like Escher, Bach, and somebody else.
1: Escher, Bach, and Godel.
0: Yes, and it was Go kind
1: of... G-O-E-D-E-L, whatever, yeah. Right,
0: and there was this kind of pop culture think-piece book about the patterns and thoughts of these three very disparate figures. And, of course, Glenn Gould's recordings of these variations made them iconic. I don't know whether he really initiates... I mean, again, the weird thing about Bach is in his own time, he wasn't considered that important, and then he's become kind of a musical god.
1: One of the big three.
0: He is, yeah, he is... and it's amazing. Even Lenny Bernstein likes him and, and Lenny's very much the romantic mold, but he's, he's got a warm spot
1: a wet spot in the bed for uh, Bach, Beethoven and Mozart. Yeah. That's, for, for Bach. That's the rule.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's Mozart. I, I don't, Mozart is my, no, not,
1: not Lenny. I'm just saying Bach, Boven, Beethoven and Mo- Mozart. Those are the big three in classical. You don't okay. like them. You, you don't count, man.
0: There you go. Anyway. So our friend, pianist, Yuri Kane, who is another figure. Why is he our friend? All right. This figure. <laughs> and I, got I just want to
1: know, when did he become a pal?
0: Right. Maybe Basically. I was being ironic. He, too, is a roughly this era. He's born in 56. So, you know, again, roughly this generation. But the difference is, instead of bringing in these pop culture references from the 50s, film noir, soundtracks, etc., his jam is classical music. He's done a Mahler based album he's done Mm. yeah he's in a couple different ones as well as appearing as a jazz pianist and i think of him as another downtown figure but the only album i ever got by him was his goldberg variations and it was kind of a stopper so it sounds to me like you've got some problems with this one again it's like a sprawling 70 plus track two plus hour it
1: might be the size that's on my nerves the most so box goldberg variations it's worth pointing out that they were written for a pianist to play to help a particular count fall asleep. And I think, um, maybe originally harpsichordist, I'm not sure. I I think that's right. Not pianist, harpsichordist, keyboardist anyway. But the point was, these are lullabies. The aria and then it's (laughs) 31 variations or 32 variations. They were meant to help put a nobleman to sleep, you know? (laughs) That was the point of this music. I don't think Yuri's trying to put anyone to sleep, at least not in that way. I'm kind of stunned by how many people on this I actually recognize? So, Yuri Kane, this is the first thing I've ever listened to by him. But in addition to Yuri, we have, who do we know? Don Byron is here. Yeah. Yes. Josh Roseman on trombone.
0: Greg Osby in spades. I mean, a couple of Greg
1: these are just are all Osby tunes. Yeah. Yeah, Bob Stewart is here on tuba. And there's at least one other name that I'm aware of here. Oh, I can't say it. He's this Dutch cellist who I have mm. on a couple of albums. He's a jazz player. Ernst, I'm going to attempt to say this, Reich, Reichsager, Reich mm-hmm. Reichsager, something like that. So there's a handful of names that I recognize and a few others that I think I know, but I'm not sure if I've heard albums by them or whatever.
0: And yeah, classical is, musicians. I mean, this is tons by no means, of classical. Yeah, this musicians. is by no means a jazz take on this music. We've got to stress that right out. There are a lot yes. of just hardcore classical renditions and yes. there are DJ beatbox things going on and it's and some weird spoken word interludes. I mean, there's a couple that are just him plunking out a variation with someone reciting a poem over it.
1: The, the names tell you kind of what's going on here, right? So there's Don's variation. There's a tango variation. There's the wedding march variation. Variation for cello solo, that's got to be Ernst. There's, so there's a whole host of different variations if you will here representing the original sets of variations yeah i don't know what to make of this so on the one hand this is third stream in spades right so it's jazz doing a take on classical music okay fine and then it's eclecticism because the variations are all over the place and some of them bug the shit out of me oh yeah Uh, um, and (laughs) some of them are okay and some of them i kind of like I don't know if you liked it, but I kind of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde variation really got on my fucking nerves after a while. (laughs) I think I actually preferred the classical variations more than the jazz versions. You know, Luther's Nightmare variation didn't really do it for me. But, you know, variation for violin and piano, well, I kind of liked that. So maybe that's just how square I am. A lot of the, the jazz variations didn't quite, I don't know I don't know what to make of them. I mean, because they're not even really variations. I mean, some of them are just not Bach, right? I mean, they're, they're just a freak out. They're, they're right. whatever they want to be. And the only link here is the word variation.
0: Or And the thing is, is that, you know, I realize, I don't know that we sat down and maybe this is a time to talk briefly about postmodernism, right? Which is this idea that if modernism is a movement that envisions itself as a development of aesthetic principles and a pushing forward of, I don't know, aesthetic demands on music or writing or whatever, and the next step that you're going to take. So you might have big band music, and then the modernist movement in big band music is represented by bebop, right? Postmodernism is, is kind of the sense that we've come to the end of the road of that linear development. And now we're, we're looking around and we don't know where the music aesthetically or the, or the art or the writing or whatever is going to go next. And instead, we're going to look at all the various kinds of genres around us and treat them all equally and explore them eclectically. And everything's kind of in quotation marks. What we're bringing to the project is an ironic distance from commitment to any set of aesthetic principles. Rather, we're going to kind of try each one on as a series of suits or poses and play with them. And, you know, this is really hot in in the late 80s, early 90s. And Mm -hmm. like any movement, it tended to cool after that. And to some degree, we've seen that, I think, least in the Frizzell. But there's some aspects of it, but certainly in spades and the Zorn and in Mm -hmm. a very different way, extensively in the weights. And here I feel like in 2000, we kind of see the death knell of it. It just goes to the absurd degree. And you could argue, well, what he's doing is, you know, the variations are based on a very simple chord sequence it's a very basic harmonic sequence this melody the original melodies played over and all the variations like jazz improvisation are kind of based in that set of harmonic rules that are quite simple and straightforward and he says well you know what you could do any kind of song you could do a rap song you could do a country song you could do and it's like yeah but why
1: <laughs> you know maybe the reason why was i don't know if you're aware of this but this was one of the one of the works for which bach was paid more handsomely for a single uh, work, he okay. was given like a giant cup of gold coins for the Goldberg variations. So like, yeah, so maybe Yuri Kane thought this would bring him a lot of money.
0: Well, and it—it's it, so obviously <laughs> it's a prestige project. I mean, it's one of these winter and winter CDs. It's kind of got like a cloth-bound yes. book and. Anyway, and of course, critics fawned over it. Oh, my gosh. And it's so funny because you read them. It's like they're just describing some of what they've heard. They've got no sense of like, did this project work aesthetically? Was there any point to it? It's just like, and then there's a variation where somebody, I was like, yeah, I know that. I've heard it. Can you make sense of it? Was it a good idea? And, yeah, this one, I think in some ways, having listened to it a couple times now, I'm more used to it. And so it seems a little less arbitrary, but I think especially like the gospel ones, I just feel like it's almost a parody of gospel. It's like, I've right. got Aretha Franklin. I don't need this stuff. Right. I mean, it's gospel in quotation marks. It's overdone. It's that, that sense, again, of camp or of Sartre's waiter. They're, they're trying too hard. And you do wonder, what's the point? And especially, I think that it I, really is like, all right, why are you doing all these straight classical renditions of this? I mean, what is the goal. I mean, I can understand a one album maybe that was like, Yuri new arrangements of, of these variations. Instead of for keyboard, he's added pocket trumpet and what, fine. But I, I just don't see the point. I don't get anything from juxtaposing those to these really wild, eclectic DJ and, and, and country and Western, all these different variants. I, I just, I don't feel like they, they, they play off each other in any productive way. You know, it's like, yeah. here's a segment of Greg Osby jazz. Yeah.
1: I, I feel very, very much the same way. And I started to get more and more impatient as I listened to this. It's made, in a sense, for the kind of way I listen to things for the podcast. It's made for dipping in. And then I tried to listen to it a couple of times straight through. And, and my patients get exhausted really quickly. <laughs> um, there's a handful of reviews online you can read about this. And the fawning ones talk about how he does the, the variations with a sense of humor. I don't see it. I, I, you know, I wasn't laughing. I didn't think this was funny. I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. listen to this and go hoo hoo ho ho ha ha. So I didn't see the humor the way that I can see the humor and or hear the humor in Zorn. Um, mm, yeah. This didn't seem very funny to me at all. And I think the reviewer on All Music gets this right. He says it's iconoclasm for the sake of iconoclasm, and I think that's that's pretty close to the mark here i think the whole point is to sort of break the mold or attempt to break the mold but at a certain point i'm like okay so you did it i'm not that interested the individual variations most of them don't hold my attention enough for me to want to come back to this and listen to it hundreds of times whereas i'll want to come back to any of the other three albums we've talked about many many times there just aren't enough nuggets here among the various variations for me to want to come back to and the ones that i like the best Are the classical ones. I like hearing Yuri Kane do his version of some of the variations. That, I would have listened to just him do a third stream album or just, you know, Yuri Kane plays the variations. That would have been fine.
0: And he's a fine keyboard player. He is very talented. He's a good keyboardist. And I I really feel like I want to search out. I I have not. Again, this was the stopper, right? It's it's the album I bought. The first one I got by him, I'm like, well, I'm looking elsewhere. (laughs) It just... It's not touching me at all. It is postmodernism that is so ironic. You know, it, 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 it would obey. be interesting
1: to listen to a third streamer who has classical cred the way he clearly does, right? Many third streamers are interested in classical or have some training, but it seems like Yuri Kane's the real deal, right? So I'd be interested in hearing him and a jazz ensemble do third stream. You know, and, and apparently it his, seems like he's got the cred to do
0: it. Disc won some kind of award and outraged some of the judges and others liked it. And he is, it's as Brubeck before him, right? He's going back to the very white European as, as to some degree, our buddy Brad Meldow. Indeed. uh, Going back to that well and saying, you know, my influences aren't street corner. And that's why I just wish he wouldn't bring the gospel stuff in. You know, my influences are European classical music, high art music. And I want to look at that tradition and and think about its juxtapositions and interactions with jazz. But this is not a jazz album, though there are certainly tracks on it that are just more or less unreconstructed jazz. The vast majority of it is classical, there's some third stream, and there are just these weird experiments. I I just feel like this is an album that teaches you why eclecticism for its own sake, postmodernism just as a method isn't intrinsically interesting. You've got to have something more going on. I think with with Zorn what you've got is this incredible puckish, punkish attitude. It's 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 dangerous. It's so committed. It's so on the dime intense that it kind of overcomes its arch fascination with these kind of lowbrow cultural sources and, and still has a kind of purpose, right? I, it, it wants to grab you by the collar and it succeeds. And To me, this is just like you feel it just feels very much exercisey, very academic, very doing it for the sake of doing it. And the other thing is it's two and a half fucking hours long.
1: You know, and what drives me (laughs) nuts about that is people give this all kinds of accolades. We've had this before where we look at a major project, right? Yeah and people give it accolades because of sheer size and this gets on my nerves. Uh, I was thinking about this today. I was thinking about uh, to some degree Kamasi Washington although uh, that's yeah. one of the more successful things he just shouldn't have called it the epic. But remember what we did what was it uh, the Great Lakes thing Oh by, yes. Uh, oh yeah. Well, you know. The, really
0: the, the the giant one was the 10 Freedom Summer, right? That
1: was 10 Freedom Summer, right? And you super just think, bloated, yeah. Right, it's like okay, if you name it for this and you you know, uh, indicate that your ambition is to do jazz variations on box variations. The critics will come coming, and they certainly do. But the, the basic question God, is,
0: if it's not very five, interesting.
1: You know, if it's, I give
0: this five stars, do I not have to listen to it a second time? <laughs>
1: like, maybe, you know. I mean, I just I like who is this for? Right. It's certainly not for. It doesn't feel like it's for listeners who want to enjoy themselves.
0: No, and the reason for it is these very arbitrary and. And I, I find some humor in it, but, but, and of course, there's just some bizarrely silly performances. But to me, the, the real mark of, of problem is when they bring in these gospel variants, and it just seems, I mean, that's a genre that kind of lives or dies on authenticity and intensity and emotional connection, right? There's a lot of moves in gospel that you can imitate, but if you're not feeling it and if you're not spreading the word, it is just shit. They're the saved and the damned. There is no lukewarm gospel. And these imitations just are almost borderline offensive they 're cartoons they 're caricatures and you 're just like, okay, you know i don 't need this in my life i don 't need some smart ass doing this with with no emotional stakes and and no reason to be other than he can do it and, and that 's the feeling I get from a lot of this but anyway i 'm glad we included it because it is kind of the end point of i think." the kind of pomo movement in jazz, and it does raise the questions that sometimes the orange stuff does in, in other guises, which is, you know, the mere fact you can do this, and you're showing how cool your record collection is, isn't enough. You've, you've got to have some motor there that matters, that you care about. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Yuri Kane, I, I, I've now listened to that album more for this podcast than I ever have in owning it for 20 years. I guess a lot of 20 years, because it's, I've, it's still only 2016, but yeah, that's, I probably won't be going back at the rotation. The other three are no. must-haves. I say the other three are four, five-star albums. Get them. Yes, listen to
1: Absolutely, them. absolutely. Um,
0: it, was, it was. This is a really good show. This is good stuff. Try it out. <laughs> I mean, not us don't
1: talking. Take, don't music. take the word for it. It's really a good show. It, well, I, okay. it, was, it was a
0: show about really good music. That's a better way of putting it. That's more action.
1: Ah, music. okay, there we are.
2: stable boys cry. Said someone, Come quick! The horses got loose, got grass sick. They'll founder, faint,
0: they'll die. All right. Well, you got any pop matters on your mind?
1: Sure. So a number of things have sort of gone into the rotation recently, quite a few. But the one that I keep coming back to that I just think is wonderful is I got, uh, I'm now the proud owner of the two-disc live set by The Talking Heads called The Name of This Band is The Talking Heads. Ah, okay. And motherfucker, they were a good band. And what's so impressive to me is, so the two-disc retrospective, so these are live performances from the very early days and then post-Eno, right? And what you're wanting to know when you listen to these songs is, can they do the Eno studio stuff live?" And the answer is, "Oh yes, they can yeah they um, did a killer band they had a fucking amazing band, and it's one of uh it's one of the best it's not a single performance, right so it's a double live disc and they're taken from different times so that some of the early songs you can tell they're performing in a club with like four people. You can hear the four people, oh yeah, club, you know <laughs> yeah. um. And they're just amazing. They're a great live band. They are consistently, consistently fantastic. And they get better and better at their job. So if you listen to this album, from or listen to this CD set from beginning to end, they, they know their work and they get better at their work as it goes along. Yeah. And I, I just love this double CD to death. And my favorite song by them still is Heaven. And their live version of Heaven is just
0: yeah, brilliant. Yeah, brilliant, fucking awesome.
1: Great double album. they another I band that, that there's a syndrome
0: called plane crash too late. And mm. in Talking Heads, you can argue, should it have been before Little Creatures or after Little Creatures? And I, I actually like about half of Danked, But but for the band's reputation to have survived at a higher plane, it would have had to be one of those things, probably right before Little Creatures, even though I like a lot of tracks off Little Creatures. It just, the end of that band was kind of ugly. The end of the band was kind of a trailing off and, I, I, again, I do like about half of Naked. The other half is pretty mediocre. I, I think that True Stories is kind of a car wreck of an album.
1: Oh, yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it it just, yeah. I like Naked quite a bit, actually. They, yeah, I, there, like there are the, some
0: amazing the tracks creatures. there. It's a very different. It's no longer. I feel like with Naked, you're listening to a production with, with him singing.
1: Right. I don't It's feel not a like, band anymore. It's
0: not a band that. album anymore. And, and so, really, that would have um, been like the best David Byrne solo album ever.
1: And, and yeah. the, they made one of the great concert movies of yeah. all time. Was it stopped making stop making sense? Yeah, absolutely. And there's some. It is so one of the best for the kids out there who wonder right, what we're so. talking about because this was when we were kids. And, and that album, that that concert movie is yeah. is the shit.
0: But but I feel like that, and then the, the attempt to come back with the rest of the band, no talking, just head. I just it it was not a pretty ending musically no. or emotionally. Just like to some degree, I mean, I like some later REM stuff. Should the plane crash have come after Automatic for the People? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really should have. And again, I, I find a lot to value in their later work. But yeah, it it should have. And I mean, really, what I'm saying is the band breakup. Not, yeah. You know, I'm not trying to kill these people, but their reputation would be very different if they'd broken up after that album. Their reputation would be notches higher, especially I think in the minds of younger people who, again, think of them and think of Talking Heads as kind of lame dad rock. Well, they had some brilliant moments. It's just. Well, if you listen
1: to the early stuff, I mean, I don't know how any kid today could say this is dad rock. And the lyrics are fucking disturbing. They uh are.
0: It, it anyway. It, so we yeah. old people defend her anyway. It, it is and it, my point being that historic, history has not been as kind to of them because they did not end at the perfect times, but there is a lot to, to love in, in that group. And there's a lot to love obviously in R.E.M.
1: Tom, I love on the, I love on the um on on the early songs when they finish Playing a song, David Byrne always says thank you. But on the early days, he says thank you in this really weird. He doesn't say thank you. He says thank you, right, <laughs> like, yeah. like he's a kid in the hallway who's just been given a cookie and sent off to bed. Absolutely, it's really, they're very it's really funny.
0: It is. It's a band that was working with the whole persona of the rock star and thinking, wouldn't it be cooler if it was a Chinese functionary rather than? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just most most gratified sir you know i just really it was it was kind of extreme nerdiness as its own kind of punk you know we're going to be so straight that we've gone around to weird anyway a fascinating band worth hearing so anything else
1: lots of things but that's the one that really is kind of stuck in my head late i did try the the i finally tried to listen to a couple of Joanna newsome I <laughs> listened to the Joanna Newsom and the East Street band. And then uh, I, just, uh, yeah. I went ahead and listened to Joanna Newsom East or whatever. And right. I just can't get past that fucking voice. I just want to yeah. stab my ears out.
0: I, I guess it was so weird because our mutual friend, when he introduced me to her, apologized for the voice. And so by the time I actually heard her, I was set up for like, I don't know yakamoto i or whatever the fuck his name is or just something just you know or, or that apparently she makes Street...
1: kate bush sound like an opera singer
0: yeah or you know uh right now meryl streep's doing a movie about this world war ii million <laughs> you know heiress who thought she was a great opera singer and was like one of the worst singers in the world and, and finally had this carnegie hall concert where it all came crashing down and it's like the second movie about this figure we're, we're fascinated with it trump anyway yeah I, I was ready. And so it's like, well, this isn't as bad as I thought it might. You either get through it. And I, I feel like I have. I don't even think about it that much anymore. And you just kind of take it as this is Joanne-ness, right? I mean, she's not. Or Ugh. you can't stand it. And, and I'm empathetic to the people that can't stand it. But I, I like Joanne fine. But I can see. And, and, again, if you take it as affected, if you take it as, as, as she wants to be Betty Boop or something, it would be unendurable. I, I don't take it well, that way, know, but I can I see might,
1: it I might, I might have my come-to-Jesus moment. I mean, I did have my come-to-Jesus moment with Karen Ann, who I now think is not like, a, a vapid, breathless uh, okay. Francis chanteuse, who I want to blow up with hand grenades, but I actually kind of enjoy her music. I enjoy her singing, and like i I got through like I got okay. through I, I remember I had that with um with Brian Ferry for the longest time, you oh, know? a lot of so people, yeah, you know it's and like Ooh, you if know you want to but shock now someone I'm
0: like with the seeming affectation, you know you play them, it's my party, and I'll cry if I want to exactly. I played that for a class once, and they were visibly squirming, it's like, make this stop, I don't understand. I'm so, turning
1: gay. Stop! You know. I, so I may have my come to Jesus moment with right. Joanna Newsom, and who's the other one you love so much? That 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 folk singer. That oh, I you can't hate stand. Laura Marling. Yeah. Laura Marling. Well, I don't I think, even understand. She, I, right. I just don't get it.
0: And I think she is a, a much more traditionally good singer. You might just decide that she's
1: ripping off Joni Mitchell
0: to the degree you just can't stand it. You want to strangle her anyway. I was because I was listening to uh, I have no voice, but I'm a singer. I can't remember what the hell it is. Any one of her earlier albums and like yeah i like this one I, I just i do like laura part of it has to do with the production i gotta admit but i like her but yeah i understand again you know i i can see arguments that she's can be annoying i think she's a more traditional voice i mean i don't think she's as odd or eccentric or nasal as joanna but anyway yeah it, it could happen
1: i saw a movie recently woody allen's cafe society mm. and it, you want to see this for one reason and one reason only it's not a good woody allen movie it's like a pastiche of many woody allen movies turned into a woody allen movie it's like yeah. you've seen this movie before right. um woody is very hit and miss these days and this is a, a miss but 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 it's set in Hollywood and New York city in like the thirties and the scenes in the thirties are set in a club and there's some jazz singing. And at first when I heard the singer, I'm like, God, she reminds me of blossom Deary." And then I waited until the end and, uh, it's cat Edmondson. Yes. She's in the movie. God and bless I was her. like, and I mean, I liked her, but I was like, God, she reminds me of blossom Deary." But oh, and um, she's not blossom Deary. There was Who a film. That?
0: There's a film made of that, uh tension novel about hollywood or something uh i can't remember the,
1: oh i know what you're talking about and yeah, anyway, in any uh, inherent, inherent vice
0: thank you and joanna newsom's in that one so if you want to see some joanna uh. she appeals to- yeah laura marling the, the album i was thinking of us i speak because i can yeah, so
1: because i can
0: but but uh yeah as i was mentioning earlier do track down that debut album by Cat of standards, did we um, do? Uh, we did the shows? second one, and the second one uh, is more mixed. The first one is more traditionally jazz standards, and I think it's fantastic. All right, uh, and then the third one, as I said, is all her originals. And we had that. I had the problem of they're all very solid genre exercises, but there was no persona or point of view behind them, and mm-hmm. so they just seem to be one thing after another. And at that point, you're like, we might as well get someone with a more traditionally good voice to do it. I, I, <laughs> I don't know that, but but the, the album standards includes "Summertime" etc. I like that album a lot. I, I've I've only streamed it, but it's 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 good. I think it's it's the best one I've heard by her. Though uh, the second one we did talk about is also got a lot of fine moments. So I very briefly I listened to Animal Collective's album "Painting With" and also I think Panda Bear is one of the members of the Animal Collective. Probably. And I listen to Panda Bear Meets the Grim Reaper, and both of those albums are cute. No problem with either of them. No particular depths in either of them. I don't think they're the worst band in the world or the top 10 worst bands, and they have been listed in that area. <laughs> I, I do think there's some melody there at the same time. Ultimately, they're chopping up and playing with pretty simple, straightforward song structures. And they're pleasant enough, but I, I'm not going to, I think, have a deep relationship with either album. It's just they're both a change of pace. All right. And that concludes podcast 98. As always, you can reach us at pat at jazzbaster.com and mike at jazzbaster.com. If anyone does have home remedies for Mike's terrible condition caused by running, please contact mike at jazzbaster.com. You can download the podcast from www.jazzbaster.com or from iTunes. Yes, we're on Facebook. Please follow us, like us, and do those other Facebooky things. We're just 10 years behind the zeitgeist, and we're damn proud of it. Tune in next time as we discuss works by Thomas Chapin, Peggy Stern, with Chapin as a guest, and Holly Hoffman. And we promise no albums named Naked City. Till then, take care.